Hey everyone, welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star. This is David here along with Chris. Um, Chris, we had uh, last weekend off, got a much needed chance to charge the batteries and we're back at it again. How, are, how have you been? I've been doing well, doing well. Uh, how about yourself? Uh, I can't complain, can't complain working, but uh, you know that's part of life. Uh, before we get started here, I do want to tell everybody, um, follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed. Uh, go to iTunes, subscribe to us at Digital Killed, the Radio Star Podcast. If you could leave us uh, a review and rate us, that would be really good. We'd appreciate that. We're also on Instagram at Digital Killed, the Radio Star Podcast. Chris, before we get going with um, what you want to talk about and um, our topic this evening, uh, it seems like now every time we talk, somebody has died. And um, since our last episode, uh, Greg Allman, one of the founding members, of course, of the Allman Brothers, died from what's being reported as liver cancer. Um, I, I, I'd say I'm a modest um, Allman Brothers fan. I've seen them twice and uh, um, have you know several of their live albums. But uh, the guy was very, very influential, influential to a lot of people in a lot of genres of music. And uh, he's dead way too early, only 69. I know he lived a hard life. Uh, been rumors of bad health the last six or seven months. But... Uh, Always sad when you see somebody that was a pioneer in music die like that. Yeah, I agree. No, I'm not. When you say you're a mild fan, I'm I'm really not even that of the Allman Brothers. I, that and don't misinterpret that. I'm not saying I, I I do not like them. It's just not really my cup of tea. I mean, you know this. I don't listen to I don't listen to jam bands. I know you said they kind of influenced a lot of people, and they did. I mean, everything they were everything from classic to southern to jam, and uh, I just kind of look at them as. I kind of look at them as more of a jam band than anything, and that's not really my cup of tea. But um, yeah, but he was—I mean, great vocalist, really good, really good vocalist, and highly influential band. And it just sucks that cancer is taking yet another one. I mean, because what is? I think both Bowie and Lemmy were cancer. Yeah, and, and uh, so here's another one. And Greg Almond. Well, on to happier news. You uh, texted me earlier this week. You have a couple of uh, new uh, albums and or bands that you wanted to talk about before we got to our main topic. So I'm just going to turn the mic over to you. Well, one of them's not really uh, an out because they don't have an album out. And, and to be honest, I don't know that I'd even be that interested in the album. But it's Prophets of Rage, which is, of course, guys from Rage Against the Machine with you know uh, Chuck D and guy from Cypress Hill. And... You know, I guess I was, I, I saw it to come through Twitter, they had a song, and I decided to go ahead and listen to it, and I actually really liked it a lot. And um, an effort of keeping, at your request, David, keeping the show clean, I won't say the full title of the song, we'll just say it's called <laughs> Un-F the World. Um, but it's, it's a really good song, and, uh, you know, if if, uh, they, if they put out a couple more tracks that are like that, I may be interested in buying that record. But first, first song I've heard so far, I do like. Um, but yes, what I was going to talk about is there is a, there's a new band and I don't know if this is just a one-off thing. I, I, I hope to God it's not a one-off. It's called, they're called dream car. And the reason I say, I don't know if it's going to be a one-off is you've got, it's, it's no doubt the the band, no doubt minus Gwen Stefani and Davey Havoc, the vocalist from the punk band AFI. And they merged together, and they did a throwback 80s new wave band. And, I mean, these guys are legit. It is it is so good, just addictive. I cannot stop listening to it. I think that, I think Davey Havoc's voice is, I think it it's more suited for this style of music than it is the punk. And I pretty much like every single song on it. And it's just, it's great when something like this of, you know, that 80s sound comes back and just something new like that. It's, it's, um, there's not a lot of that being made right now. And I love it so much. If you're a fan of either AFI or No Doubt, don't expect to hear, you know, either one of those bands in this product because you're not. It's, it's not even close to those bands, but just a great, great new wave record. I mean, I'm, when I'm doing the, the Rolling Star, Rolling Stone five stars, I'm probably giving it five. I mean, I, I like it that much. So if you if you want to hear a little bit of a throwback new wave band, check them out. They're called Dream Car. All, one word, all capital letters. And the album is called Dream Car as well. Well, if since 
uh, all of you out there listening aren't privy to our text messages back and forth during the week, I will tell you as I tell tell Chris seemingly once every couple of weeks, he never ceases to amaze me at what he can find, and uh, that that was a uh, that was a, a find out from left field, kind of like a astronoid. But I honestly I haven't I've had a very busy week and weekend, so I haven't had a chance to look at it, but I do have it saved to uh, go over it. So. Uh, no doubt, without Gwen Stefani, that might not be a bad thing, Chris. Yeah, it will, and it's it's not it's not a ska type thing. Like I said, this is throwback, and you know it, you can almost hear. I mean, you could you could probably take the um, you could probably take some of the early new, you know kind of new wave hit makers bands, maybe like like Duran Duran, but get a little bit more, but a little bit more of the kind of cooler, more like newer type bands. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just, it just has that sound. I mean, it screams eighties and, and they're going for it. I mean, they're, they're, that's full on. That was their attempt. I mean, that's probably, they're probably those kind of bands. All that new it was probably hugely influential on them. I imagine they're probably all guys that are well into their forties. And, um, I mean, the cover art looks, looks eighties. The, uh, the picture of the band has neon lights around them. I mean, they are totally going for that look. And, uh, if, if if you have any of that, want any of that nostalgia, but want to hear something new, something fresh, just give it a chance. Yeah, I will. Like I said, I've got it saved on uh, Spotify to give it a give it a listen. Well, this is a podcast that we have been wanting to do ever since we started uh, the podcast, and we thought now was the time to do it. So, this week's podcast is going to be about REM, specifically their first five albums, studio five studio albums, and an EP and a uh, compilation album. Uh, when they were on IRS Records. Uh, for anybody that knows me and Chris, we both really like REM. And for anybody that knows me and Chris, we probably we disagree on which eras of REM we like the most. So uh, that's kind of a common uh, theme amongst our rela- relationship when it comes to music. But what we're going to do is we're going to discuss, the, like I said, the IRS years. That's what we're going to call it. Next week, we're going to... Um, go over uh, the Warner Brothers years when they went to megastardom and for a while were arguably the biggest band in the world. And we'll go over that part of their career. And at the end of today, we're going to uh, rank our uh, IRS albums and we'll do that for the Warner Brothers albums next week. So uh, if you're a fan of REM, I think you're really going to enjoy this. If you're a casual fan of REM, maybe we can turn you on to uh, some more deep cuts that you haven't listened to. And if for some reason you're listening to this, you're not a fan of REM, uh, hopefully you will uh, give them a chance. They're one of the, in my opinion, one of the great American rock bands. So, uh, Chris, my first recollection of REM um, was a guy by the name of Ted Clark sat with me in study hall, and his sister was in college at the time, and I think I was either in six, I think I was in the sixth grade, and he would always wear like these REM shirts and things like that to a school and said that was stuff that his sister listened to. And, uh, the first time I actually think I consciously recall hearing them was, I guess when green came out and, uh, stand. Uh, so that's an album we'll get to next week. But, um, initially I wasn't a big fan of REM at that age because they weren't, um, Motley Crue, Metallica or poison. But, um, slowly but surely, uh, became one of my favorite bands and really about 15 years ago i just i really got deep into the catalog and, and really became a real big fan of rem what are what's your first recollection of the band mine would be during the document years and i was like you i i was um and we talked about this before on, on prior podcast if they didn't have long hair you know loud guitars blazing solos that you know verse chorus verse chorus bridge solo if it didn't go in that format i I, I wasn't i wasn't the most diverse young lad let's just say that and um but for me i remember document and and i didn't dislike the songs but they played they played the one i love and uh into the world as we know it on mtv those videos and i particularly remember this and i told you this the other day i remember the video Vaguely remembered. I, I need to go back and watch it on YouTube, but I remember it was a kid. He was probably, I don't know, give or take 12 years old and skateboarding in what looked like an abandoned house. 
and that's really when they first came on the map for me. And and you know, I think we'll talk about this as this, as we go through with this podcast. That's probably when when the majority of America first started to notice them was on that album. That last IRS album was the one that, well, obviously it was doing good things because it's what's got got them such a lucrative deal with Warner Brothers. Right. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's when I first started listening to them. I'd say I first started getting into them when I. High school is when I f- first started getting a little bit diverse. I remember, you know, shocking myself buying the new Chris Isaac, um, buying Hank Williams' greatest hits, and I was finally discovering that there was music other than long hair and loud guitars. And you know, one of those was Automatic for the People. You know, that was the one that I guess probably first got me. Which again, we'll get into that next week. But yeah, long answer. But that's when it first really. That's my first recollection of them. You know, one of the I was thinking about it this week, kind of how to introduce them. They're one of the few bands, and, and correct me if, if you think my thinking is misguided, that you can listen to when you're happy, you can listen to when you're sad, you can listen to when you've had a long night and you come in and you just want to chill out, or you can listen to uh, when you're driving down the road. Um, they seem to be a band for all occasions, at least for me. What about you? I mean, yeah, I mean, and in particular, those, these first, these early IRS records, you know, um, you know, you could listen to something like, um, yeah, I agree with you on those, on those albums for sure. You know, you, you get into something like automatic for the people. Um, it's not really a happy record. Right. So, I mean, a couple of moments on there, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, but there, but to, to your point, there's something of their catalog for pretty much every mood. You know, tell me, tell me into the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Doesn't put a smile on your face. Right. You know, make you want to roll the windows down. And on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, everybody hurts. Well, hopefully you're not having a bad day if you hear that song, because <laughs> it's probably going to get a little bit worse. Right, or any of the first three Bill Berry, post Bill Berry albums. Yeah, well, that's just because <laughs> we'll get into that later. But that's not. That's just because it's not very good music. Um, but anyway, that's for next week. Well, so everybody knows that REM formed, uh, I think, in 1980 in Athens, Georgia. Um, 79, I believe. Uh, that's correct. The late 79 is when they were first auditioning. Okay. I think their first show may have been 80. Okay. So it was Bill Berry, Mike Mills, uh, Peter Buck, and uh, Michael Stipe. And um, they uh, recorded a song called Radio Free Europe. And... Um, put that out and had some success with it and, you know, got signed by RRS records and, uh, their manager didn't think uh, they were at the time ready to record a, uh, full album. So he convinced them to record an EP. Um, it was actually going to be released on an independent label. Let me correct myself, but the, yeah, they were, yeah. Uh-huh. I was going to say that just yeah. wanted you to finish first, but yeah. Yeah. And by, by the way, not to cut you off too, but that, that, um, radio for Europe, it was, uh, Hip Tone Records, and uh, I believe the B side was Sitting Still, right? Which is on, which is on Murmur, as you're well correct. as Radio for Europe. You're correct. Um, like I said, it was going to be originally an independent label, but the demo caught the attention of an of Irish Records, uh, and so they record uh, a five song EP, and uh, initially it was just well received in Georgia and on some college radio stations. But the EP wound up selling twenty thousand copies in its first year. Uh, pretty much, you know, the band selling it at shows and, and things of that nature. Um, and, you know, they released this um, EP and it got a lot of attention. And a lot of people say they're the architects of the alternative movement or the uh, indie movement. So uh, the five songs that are on it are Wolves Lower, Guarding, Guarding, oh, man, tongue tied, Gardening at Night, Carnival of Sorts, Boxcars, One Million, and... Uh, stumble so chris that's a little bit of the background on it uh what what do you have to chime in on a chronic town okay let me take you let's go back a step first (laughs) to um prior to this coming out yes you're right they were going to release that album chronic town just independently and little cool story that i recently found out and i was telling you about this the other day um bill barry and and mike mills you know they went to high school together which from uh, supposedly they 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 pretty much hated each other and they both went to an audition for a band and they saw each other there and like, Oh crap. And they went and went through with it and like, okay, I can play with this guy. And they became best friends. Um, then fast forward, you know, Stipe met, um, Peter Buck at a record store in Athens where Peter Buck worked. They formed a friendship based on music, decided to start a band. 
and they ended up joining forces with uh, with Barry and Mills. And one thing I thought was pretty pretty funny that I read is, um, you know, and I've read this, I've seen it before in interviews. Mike Mills, or um, Michael Stipe, was not too keen on being in a band with Mike Mills because he was just falling down drunk. He didn't want to be in a band with him, but he said that uh, what kind of tipped the scale for joining forces with those two guys, with Barry and Mills, was uh, the unibrow that um, the Bill Barry had. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny, but um, but anyway, so they were um, they ended up getting an opening slot at the Fox in uh, Atlanta, opening for the Police, and this was before this was before IRS. Well, a band that those two guys had played with, Barry and Mills, a band they played with the guitar player. He um, his name is uh, Ian Copeland, and he is the brother of Stuart Copeland, the police drummer. So that's what got him an opening bill. Well, then Ian Copeland also was trying to put, was, um, he did, I think he had a uh, booking agency, I'm sure worked with, uh, closely with IRS, because they, the booking agency was called FBI. And the guy who ran IRS was another Copeland brother, uh, Miles Copeland. And he was the president of IRS. And so this Ian Copeland brother, he kept pushing his older brother to sign him. And he'd heard the demo, but wasn't that impressed. So he sent um, he sent somebody, the VP, yeah, sent a VP out to uh, New Orleans to see him play. And supposedly it was a less impressive showcase, but he still was impressed enough to where he ended up signing him to a five-year deal. And um, that puts us on to Chronic Town. I just want to give that quick little backstory. As far as Chronic Town, you and I have talked about this before. The songs themselves are some of the best songs that they ever put out. I, I love all of the songs. Now, I will say, um, Guarding, at, Guarding at Night, as well as, I'm going to move forward for just a moment, with um, Murmur, Radio Free Europe. That uh, the, the one that's on there, the version that we said was on hip tone, to me, is a much better version. It's faster. It's a faster tempo. I just like that better. You can get that version on Eponymous, which is kind of a best of, of the IRS years. And also on eponymous is a different version of guarding at night which i like better than it's on chronic town aside from that yes these songs are they're great um you know carnival sorts box cars always been a favorite of mine million wolves lower i mean it was it was so good you know and if there had been another five songs on it you know good chance i'd be saying that's my favorite rem record really yeah, because I think those songs are that good. I really do. Those five songs in Chronic Town are that good. Now, we don't know what would have been on the rest of them. Right. Now, I imagine Guarding at Night, maybe Sitting Still, since it's an early track. Right. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I love those songs. It was so cool. That last tour we got to see that they actually started busting out some of those songs. That's right. That's right. And we saw, uh, you and I saw them in Atlanta in 08, which turned out to be their, their last tour. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm a big fan, for sure, of the first three songs on Chronic Town. Uh, Wolves Lore, Gardening at Night, and Carnival of Sorts, Boxcars. Uh, I do like those. Um, and they have, you know, I think they have s- stood the test of time. And it, it was cool there at the end when they started playing some of those uh, more. And I think they play several of those on um, the, uh, I think it's called Live at the Olympia. It's an album that they put out basically yeah. them rehearsing in Dublin, Ireland in front of a crowd. Um, mm-hmm. So I think Wolves Lore for sure is on that. So, can't even remember the track listing. I own the album, you know, the album DVD combo, but I can't even remember the track listing on it. But so that album, like we said, it's an EP actually. It sold 20,000 copies. And um, they decided to go into uh, the studio and record uh, Murmur. And one of the things I found that was interesting when uh, they were going to record it was they refused to do guitar solos and synthesizers because they thought that those were dated and synthesizers for sure were dated. And so they wanted the album to have a, uh, uh, timeless feel. Um, it was released in April, 1983. It was Rolling Stones album of the year. And you got to think it beat out Michael Jackson's thriller, the police's synchronicity and U 2s war. Those first two that I just mentioned were two of the biggest albums of the decade and thriller I, th- I think is the biggest album of all time i could be wrong but if it's not it's top five 
Um, as of 1991, the album had sold 500,000 copies. Rolling Stone had it number eight on the greatest albums of the 80s. Um, and uh, I do have a little note here that originally, uh, There She Goes Again, which is um, Velvet Underground song, was supposed to be the final song on the album. Um, and they actually removed it at last minute because they would have had to pay royalties on that, which would, of course, cut into uh, the profit, uh, their profit. And like I said, many people consider this album the beginning of the alternative movement. And um, I have it um, rated... Uh, I gave... What's my composite on that? Well, I'll give that at the end. But I like the album, but I'm not as big of a fan of it as you are and a lot of other diehard REM fans are. And I'll tell you why. Some of the, I don't know, some of the songs to me just sound, I don't know how to how to put it, like they don't have any punch to it. Now, I, I know that, you know, Buck plays a style of guitar that at the time was completely different from what you were hearing on the radio. I do think there's some really strong songs on there like Pilgrimage, Radio Free Europe, Perfect Circle, Catapult, and Sitting Still, I think are all really good songs. Uh, some of the other ones I'm not that high on. Um, and, and Chris, I, I've asked you this off the record, so I'm going to ask you this on the record. I worry sometimes that this is one of those albums that people like because they're told to like it. And what I mean by that is you, you and I were six or seven years old when this came out. Obviously, we're not going to be buying R.E.M.'s Murmur at age six or seven. If, if we were, we, were, we would be the two coolest kids of all time. But... Um, so many people say this is the album you have to like. This is one of the great albums. And for me, it just, it never has, I mean, it's, to me, it's an average album. And I know that's going to infuriate a lot of people out there, but, I've, you know, it's just my opinion. And I've told you, I've had this theory that I, that people think that's an album they have to like because they to, they're told they have to like. Now, I know you disagree with that, so uh, feel free to, to rebut that as you will. Yeah, you know, okay, now to your point, if... If somebody is not an REM fan, well, they maybe try to force themselves to thinking that's one of the great albums because people tell them to. Maybe. If you're a big REM fan, are you liking that album because you're being you think you're supposed to? I don't think so. I think you like it because it's great. Yeah, it's just my opinion. If you're an REM fan, I think you like the album because it's great. I don't think it's anything that's being force fed. Um you know, not having some of the, the big pop, I guess, of what you're talking about, the bursts of sound. Well, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of things about the recording and the, of, or, um, of, um, mentioned in particular Peter Buck's playing. Well, they, when they were making that album, they made sure they wanted clean guitars, all clean guitars. They, they wanted the, at the time of the music, you know, you still had, I guess, disco was kind of dying out, some of that. So they wanted, they wanted the drums turned way down, the, the guitar and the bass up, which you know is going to give you even more of that, you know, clean guitar sound, more prominent. And then um, Michael Stipe's voice, the uh, the vocals were were lowered. He uh, he wasn't confident in, in his voice, and that kind of gave I think all those elements kind of gave that, that album a unique sound. A um, couple things I do just kind of want to get out about the band before I talk about the album in particular. The um, Yes, I feel like with with REM, they were this kind of this album was kind of like the start. Not, not even so much of alternative because I was like you said, those four alternative was there, but it was kind of you know like it with college. You know, it, they seem to be one of the first bands that college radio really kind of broke. Um, college radio never seemed to get past college radio, and REM was like that one college band. It's just you know I think that they they were the one that just kind of the first big college radio band the um you know this album i, I think oh, one other thing i just want to get out to about cool thing about rem you know because it this would have been the early stages yeah i don't i don't know when to fit this in so i'm just going to do it now one thing that i always thought was cool about them most people know anything about these guys know that they um they decided to split all the royalties i believe that was peter buck's decision he wanted to split all the royalties and just divide them four ways and he's, he was kind of a music historian, and the reason why he did that is he said most fans that break up, it's over it's over money, it's over royalties. And uh, Mike Mills said that he wasn't real happy about it at first because he thought, well, man, what if what if I write the song 
And he says, and then he ended up saying, you know, in hindsight, it was just a brilliant decision because it kept them together. And he's like, you know, the truth is we all participate in the songs. So I thought that was cool. Now, as far as this album, yeah, it's, um, I think the song, again, I rated it for Europe. Great track. I do like the hip tone version better, but, um, this is a good song. Uh, I like pretty much all these songs. I, uh, talk about the passion. It's one of the more well-known ones. Beautiful song. Um, Perfect Circle is really beautiful song, which was yeah, all the music was composed by um, Bill Berry on that one. Um, Catapult, uh, you mentioned that I love that tune as well. Um, not I don't know how many people are going to put that as one of their top songs, but I love that. I've always been a big fan of Shaking Through, and one in recent years that's really started to to grab me a lot more is Moral Kiosk. And then you know, two talking about the sound. One thing that always there's, you hear it in, in different parts of this album, but especially the song Nine to Nine, um, you hear a really big, at least I do, a really big Gang of Four influence there. And if you don't know Gang of Four, just listen. They, and they were fans of them, so I'm not saying anything crazy and inventive new thought on this. But listen to some of that old Gang, Gang of Four, and you can really hear where they were influenced by the band. But no, I think I like all these songs. I like the ones you named, but... Um, I think it's I think it's a really good really really good song or good album. It's probably one of the harder albums to uh, understand Stipe vocally, and he's never been easy. Um, and what you do understand, half the time it doesn't make sense. But the cool thing about Stipe is he's always said is basically he has his meaning, and he wants you to have your own meaning. And um, I know one of the guys said that the the fan what it means what the song means to the fans is more it means more than what it means to them which I thought is pretty cool. Going back to Catapult, I feel like that would have been a great song for them to release as a single because that, that's a pop song, really, with the uh, kind of with, with the chorus and stuff. And interesting, you know, that that's not one of the more well-known songs on the album. I agree with you. It's a great, I have, I have it at four and a half out of five stars. Yeah, that, that Catapult is great. And I've, and, and this is one that, you know, our, our mutual friend, this big REM fan, is, I, I, don't, I know he doesn't dislike the song, but I think, I, I think and he, he may tell me I'm wrong on this, but I think he uh, has always been surprised that I, that I like Shaking Through as much as I do. Um, it's just that chorus. I, I think it's, the chorus is just, I think it's, it's, it's more of an upbeat song, but I think it's just a really, really beautiful sounding chorus. Um, yeah, it is. I have that one at three and a half stars. And you're talking about dividing up the writing credits. Um, you say Perfect Circle was written mainly by Bill Berry? Yeah, well, he did all the music. Yeah, he did the whole, I mean, I believe he wrote all the music. And of course, Stipe added in the, uh, the lyrics. Because I also have here that he was the primary writer for Talk About the Passion. Yeah, and that's another great one. I mean, it may, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm not real, not, I'm not real good at who wrote which song, but you know, I'm, at least on the first record for finding out he wrote both of those, you know, maybe kind of the style he did more of the slow boundary types. Oh, and one other thing too, about this album, I thought was pretty funny is, um, the, the name murmur just comes from, it is supposedly one of the seven easiest words to pronounce in the English language. And I think they had those seven words and they went with murmur. That is funny considering, uh, his lyrics are so hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Right. On the album. Like you said, this album was, beloved by college radio and got a lot of airplay amongst um, the college radio stations at the time. And they toured under this, started building a fan base initially locally in the uh, Athens, Atlanta, uh, southeastern area, and uh, decided to go back in and record another album, which would be their second album, released in April of 84 called Reckoning, which uh, actually reached number 27 on the charts. Uh, I have here that it was almost a double album. That Peter Buck thought they had so much material they could make a double album. So I'm glad they didn't do that. Those, in my opinion, usually don't turn out that well. But when they were recording it, um, they tried to. They made an effort this time to capture the band's live sound, and I think that really comes through in the recording of the uh, of the album. And they did this in 16 days. I've read other reports that say as few as 11 days. 11 is what I got. Yeah, okay. I got that they did it at 11. They said they wanted to record. When you said doing a live, doing a like live, it, the, um, it was either, uh, it was either Easter, Easter or Dixon. One of, you know, the guys that did their album, one of those two guys was saying that, uh, 
everything was done on the first most everything was done on the first or second take and uh they and the band wanted to record it as fast as possible to try to i think to try to avoid making murmur part two and they didn't make murmur part two in, in my opinion no uh, they the, didn't the lyrics were much darker than uh those on murmur and um one of the one of their better albums in my opinion chris i'm gonna let you discuss the album um what your thoughts on it first then i'll give mine yeah it's one of it's definitely up there it's one of my favorite albums by them as well and you know like like most of these early albums there there really aren't songs on it that i dislike you know i um i think just the opening track you know i think is harbor goat i think that's, that's a great one um South Central Rain, I know, has always been a really big favorite of uh, Michael Stipe himself. And you know, time after time, second guessing, uh, you know, letter never sent. I know I'm naming every song, but that, again, I love the album. And don't go back to Rockville. I know it's more of a probably one of the more known songs of this album. And but so what? It's spectacular. Uh, it's one of my favorite on the albums, if, if not my favorite, but. Yeah, I mean, really, I do like every single track on this album. Um, but again, that's not doing—that's not much different than any of the other early albums. You're going to hear come probably a common trend. Um, well, that, you know, it's—and it, it's, you're right—it's not murmur—it's not murmur part two, but it's still—they didn't really go and change anything too much on it. They didn't really change the formula much. Well, to me, the the recording is, is better than. Um, murmur was the same studio same producers too right um you're talking about harbor coat um if i had to pick that's a top five rem song for me um i have uh two songs on here that 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 are just i have as five stars harbor coat and don't go back to rockville and uh another one that i really like that took a while to grow on me but uh once i got it i, I really enjoyed this camera i really like that song it's a good one and uh time after time um, love that song. I think it's one of the best. That's my favorite of the ballads. Yeah, it is. So, it is so good. I did. Uh, Don't go back to Rockville is uh, an interesting one because Mike Mills primarily wrote that uh, about a girl he was dating at the time. I guess that was leaving to go back to Rockville, Maryland. And originally, when they recorded that song, it was recorded in almost like a punk thrash style. And uh, they decided to do it as a country song as a way of kind of poking fun. Uh, with the guy that was their manager then, because he really liked country music. But the girl that he wrote it about has said that there are several factual inaccuracies about the song. That was the quote that I saw. But if you go see him, well, you don't can't go see him in concert now. But if you did, uh, Mike Mills usually took the uh, center mic for that one and, and got to sing it with Stipe um, taking over a stage uh, stage right and singing backing vocals. Um, Harbor Coat uh, did start making an appearance. On that final tour, it is on that Live at the Olympia album. Uh, I would say uh, Pretty Persuasion and Don't Go Back to Rockville were probably the two that stayed in the uh, rotation concert-wise for most of, their, uh, of most of their career versus the other songs on the album, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, I mean, well, unfortunately, most of there was a time, you know, with, that, with the 90s that there were, it was, it was few and far between to hear anything from IRS, you know, you just didn't hear other than maybe other than maybe end of the world, but uh, but yeah, pretty persuasion. I would say definitely is one that was that they were probably more prone to play for sure. But um, and you, you did bring just bringing up Mills. I just want to again, I, I, just like I said previously, I don't know when is the time to say this. I'm just going to get this out right now. Mike Mills, one of the most important non-vocalist, like lead vocalist of any band. Um, the harmonies is as unique as they come. His voice is great. Songs when he's lead on them, he sounds great. And I think he's a really, really good bassist. I would say that, I, I'm glad you brought that point up because I, I meant to make it too. He is, to me, is as equally important to the sound of R.E.M. as Michael Anthony is to the sound of Van Halen. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm about to I, I say I'm almost, Gonna say something probably almost sounds like sacrilege. I almost think he's more important just uh, because Michael Anthony. Yeah, you'd hear a little bit, but for the most part on those records, other than a couple of breakdowns, you're not hearing his 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 backing vocals are not as prominent as um, as Mike Mills. That's just my opinion. Well, they're not as prominent. 
Well, they're both very important to uh, the sound that uh, made them a lot of money. <laughs> I agree. Um, reckoning, um, numerous thumbs up from you, correct? Yes, yes. Which, again, we're going on a common trend. I mean, these first few especially are just uh, – I think they're all great. And I don't, I don't really have – you know, we've gone through two of them, and I don't really pick a song on them that I like. I just don't like that song. I don't really have one of those yet. Well, um, the next album um, lends me quite a few t- times, I can say that. Um, they, they continued touring and went back in the studio to release Fables of the Reconstruction in 1985. And uh, this is the first album, I guess, to really have kind of a um, somewhat uniting theme to it. Um, it's around Southern Gothic myths um, that, uh, you know, things that happened in the South that, or uh, myths that... Uh, you know, commonly told by Southerners. And the album did sound completely different from the other two. Um, very unique um, guitar sounds from Peter Buck, in my opinion, compared to the first two albums. And the drums were turned up a little um, in the mix. I know this is somewhat of a polarizing album for REM fans. Uh, and it's even a polarizing album from what I've read for, for the band. Um, at times, they've given interviews that said they weren't that big, you know, big of a fans of the album. Uh, I've also read, you know, where Peter Buck has said that it's grown on him, and you know, he uh, it's not as bad as they thought it was. Um, I'm not just a huge fan of it, but it does contain what is probably my favorite REM song, "Driver 8. Absolutely love that song. I love "Feeling Gravity's Pull," um, but after that. Uh, it gets, in my opinion, it gets kind of mediocre. Um, I, like I said, I know there are a lot of REM fans that like it. There's ones that hate it, and so it's a polarizing one. So, if I had to guess, Chris, you probably like it. Of course I do. <laughs> you know, and here's the funny thing: uh, I was thinking, okay, um, we're doing this. You know, I'm, I got out of the shower this morning. I'm grabbing a t-shirt, and I'm like, huh, I'm gonna throw on my uh, Fables of the Reconstruction, repl- you know, reprinted uh, tour shirt. Um, yes, this album's really good. And I think the reason why the band probably, the band, by all accounts, you know, they just, they weren't in a good place. You know, they, um, Peter Buck has said that no one was happy. You you know, they, they said that it was their hardest year. They were, they were living off about 140 bucks a month each. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, Stipe said that they, um, they weren't really sure they wanted to continue as a band. Um, said that he did say they almost broke up, and and it, I think it caused them to write what, and at least in Michael Stipe's words, caused them to write a really dark record. And I think, and honestly, part of the problem too that I've picked up on as far as why they were not really happy and probably not getting along very well is um, they they were recording this in London in March and the miserable, the weather was miserable and they hated it over there. And they said it was a mistake recording it in London. Um, but, but yeah, it was just a very difficult time for the band. Um, as far as the songs on it. Yes. Your driver eight would, it has to, it's, it's pretty high up there. Talking about different guitar sounds. Well, one of the ones you said you love feeling gravity's pull, just that opening riff. I mean, iconic for an REM, especially an REM opener. Um, as far as another t- point highlighting musicianship on it, I've already talked about how I really like Mike Mills' bass playing. Green Grow the Rushes. Um, go back and listen to that one again. Just listen to his play-in. I, some other people may listen to it and say, well, what, what's the big deal? But to me, I just love the play-in on that one. The the ballad on here, the, the last cut, Wendell G., I love that song. I love Auctioneer, Life and How to Live It. Um Another one of the popular ones, because I know it made uh, the eponymous, what I brought up earlier, the IRS compilation, is uh, Can't Get get There From Here. And um, like I've pretty much done before, I'm naming just about every single song. Um, yeah, I don't understand why this one's crapped on so much. Um, it, because it shouldn't be. It's a, it's a really, really, it's a really good record of theirs. Favorite song, least favorite song on there? Mm. I mean, I probably have to go. I probably have to go. Driver Eight as favorite, least maybe good advices. We're close. I have Driver Eight as my favorite, and Auctioneer is my least favorite. 
I love Auctioneer. <laughs> Doesn't shock me. Great song. Interesting. That Great they, song. Interesting that they go to London to record an album about the South. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, yeah, you're right. Well, but, um, this one did not really have, uh, other than Driver 8, um, anything that continue to be played a lot uh, on future tours that I can remember once they got really big, but we both agree Driver 8 is one of their better songs. So they go from that to uh, recording in London to recording in Indiana at John uh, Cougar or Mellencamp at that time. Who, who knows what his name was? Uh, at John Mellencamp Studio in Indiana. And uh, this time they used a gentleman by the name of John, I think he pronounced his last name, Gammon. And he was the only, it was the only time he ever produced an album uh, for them. And it did uh, peak at twenty one, at number 21, which is the most current, current commercially successful up until that point for them. First gold record. Right, first gold record. And uh, this time was the first time that they their lyrics uh, had kind of an environmentally conscious element to them uh, on Falls on Me and uh, Cuyahoga. Chris, we've talked about this on other podcasts. Um, I love this album. I, I find very little to nitpick on with this album. Begin to Begin is one of my favorite. I listed on our favorite songs episode. It's one of my favorite songs. I would you'd be hard pressed to find a better start first four songs on the album uh, than what they do with Begin to Begin these days. Falls on me and Cuyahoga. That is that's a strong that's a strong lineup uh, to, to begin with. Uh-huh. Um, a matter of fact, uh, I mean, I had to rate underneath the bunker because it's on the album, and I gave that a one out of five. Uh, if I didn't do that, uh, this my composite score would be very high. It's probably the album of theirs that I listen to. Uh, one of the one of the two that I listen to the most. I feel like it's aged really well over time. It was recorded very well, and. Uh, um, I believe is a song that, um, that I really love on the album. I gave it five stars. It has some really good, um, a really good ballad, Swan Swan H, I love. And then, of course, a cover of Superman, which uh, I've never seen. I don't think they played that very much live, but that's a phenomenal song. We probably should have listed, in my opinion, I should have listed on our uh, favorite cover songs um, episode. But uh, Begin to Begin, Great song. They that was the first song they played uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, great title. Uh, love the lyrics on it. Very well recorded album. Uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, um, you know I will tell you too that um, this producer he, uh, Michael Stipe has said that uh, he was the first guy to really, well, first one to really question him and uh, question Stipe and just you know as Stipe's Stipe's words were question you know, what I was going on about. Uh, and he said that, he said that that record, he said he literally made it hell for him, for Michael Stipe. And Michael Stipe said that, but looking back on it, he said, uh, he admires him for it now. Um, just quick little thing, title, Weiser's pageant. If anybody's ever wondered, comes from a Pink Panther movie. Um, the album itself. I mean, what can I say? It's a uh, spoiler alert. It's my uh, favorite REM album. Um, Yes, the opening track, Begin to Begin. Uh, and I think Just a Touch was something they used to play back um, before Murmur even came out. That was an early song that they wrote. But yes, I believe is great uh, these days. And one of the best songs on the album to me, and probably one of their better songs, is The Flowers of Guatemala. That song is perfect. Um, Cuyahoga, great one. What If We Give It Away. You're right about Swan Swan H, but as far as uh, you know, another almost kind of ballad, uh, "Fall on Me," and and I agree with you. Superman is, it's great, and this this um, I don't believe the album has a weak moment. That's just my opinion, uh, and I just like I said, I just described it as perfect. Um, this album can it, it can do no harm. I mean, it is love it. Yeah, it's an album if somebody was said, hey, I want to get an R.E.M., this would be one of the ones I would give them because it's a little bit of mix of where they were and a little bit of mix of where they were going, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you definitely hear some elements that you would hear more of on, on Document. There's no doubt about that. I think that's fair. Yeah, I have five, one, two, three, four songs on here with five stars. Um, what do you have as, as uh, Flowers of Guatemala? 
Actually, I, I have it as three, which is just average. Your list is flawed. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, I have a lot of fours, fours and a halves. Um, I mean, I, I love the album. I mean, I don't, I don't really skip over anything when I put it on. Usually I listen to it all the way through. Um, absolutely love it. Love it. One of their one of their better works. Well, Chris, you know, their popularity was, was growing at this time. And uh, to beyond uh, college radio, starting to get into some mainstream um, spins on radio stations, but still haven't become, you know, the band that they would eventually become. I want to let you talk a little bit about Dead Letter Office and, and explain to people uh, the what that album is and uh, why it is so beloved. Well, I mean, first of all, it was for the average listener of REM, it was, I believe it was the first time you could really get Chronic Town. You know I mean? I don't, I don't know how many, how easy that album was. You got to think this was before the internet. You couldn't go on, on, um, on eBay and find a copy of Chronic Town and the record stores. Sorry, but you just weren't going to see Chronic Town in the record stores. And, um, you know, and I, I think, God, that was never, I don't believe even put a Chronic Town. I don't believe it's ever, been put on cd to this day um so that was not an easy record to find and so dead letter office the last last five songs on it is um it it is the chronic town out ep and then the rest of it is a bunch of b-sides some of them are very very early in their career uh there are some covers three velvet revolver covers i mean velvet revolver uh, that (laughs) Velvet Underground. Uh, sorry to insult the Velvet Underground like that. Um, but yeah, three three Velvet Underground songs on here, and and then they do um, what, Toys in the Attic by by uh, Aerosmith, which honestly they make it sound like their own. I mean, it sounds like it could have been an REM song, and just some of the songs on here. Oh, and they also do that. Uh, who did King of the Road? Uh, old country song. Is it Henry, um, Henry Miller, maybe, or something like that? I know what you're talking about. It's, it's yeah, it's an yeah. Old, old I don't, old I don't think one. that's it, but I can't, I can't. It, it may be, it may be, but anyway, that um, some of the songs on here, yeah, you know, and well, and they do also do um, they do uh, Voice of Herald. You know, there's a song on here called Voice of Herald, and on Reckoning, there's a song, second song called Seven Chinese Brothers. Same song, just different lyrics. But some of the songs on the, this, man, and, and the U.S. Wide fans love it. Just pick out some of these songs and okay, and, and think about think about Chronic Town. Okay, we're we're thinking about forming your. Or I said the I could I could easily might have, I probably could have put that as my favorite album if it had with different songs. And I'm not looking in the liner notes right now. You can look in the liner notes and you can see when when about each song was was written. But you take the opening track crazy. You take something like that and throw that on with with um, on the Chronic Town, or um, you know, I'm trying to think of some other ones that I just really love. Uh, Bandwagon, Ages of You. There's some really, really, really good tunes, and that's why a lot of people love them. And the covers are great. There she goes again. You know, old Velvet song is just. I love that cover. I love the cover there, as well as the uh, Pale Blue Eyes one. There's just a really, really cool cover. But um, it's worth buying, if for no other reason, just to get those chronic down, to get those songs. Well, I read that in the liner notes, Peter Buck almost apologized <laughs> for this album coming out. Cause I think a, I think a decent number of the tracks were recorded when they were intoxicated, uh, which makes for a loose album. I love the song Crazy you're talking about. I think it was originally by a group called Pylon. And it says it's an outtake from Fables. I went in and got the insert. Yeah, and you're right. It's by Pylon. That's a uh, and, that's a great song, and that would had fit very well on Murmur or uh, on Chronic Town, like you said. Yeah, but that, I mean, a lot, and a lot of these songs. I mean, go are really really dated. I mean, Wind Out. He's it's right here. He says it's one of the earliest songs. Um, said written in the summer of 1980. So yeah, I mean, it's got, it's just got a, it's a very diverse comp. You know, it's here's the thing about this dead letter office. It's um, it's what's kind of common with um, a lot of times with compilations. You know, I'm a, a band that, that you know I'm I'm a big fan of, and this they're nowhere 
related to REM, but it's just a good time to bring this up. A band, for example, that I'm into, this uh, punk band called Alkaline Trio, they did a, um, a B-Sides as well, and it's called Remains. And it's maybe the best thing they ever put out. You just can't consider it an album. And I think oftentimes, you know, some B-Side albums people put out suck. But a lot of times those B-Side songs have some of the best stuff. Some of those throwaway tr- tracks, it just amazes me, the people that they didn't think they were good enough to put on the album. You know, Crazy is a perfect example. Yeah, th- this one, they could have had a... Uh, uh, it made their other albums even better by putting several of these songs on there. I, I love... Very uh, common with B-Sides. Like I said, B-Side yeah. album, very common. Yeah, I love There She Goes Again and Crazy. Those, and Toys and Attic, you're right. It's almost as if, as if it is their song. And it's an album that is beloved by a lot of their fans. And like you said, for a while, that was the only way you could get Chronic Town. So um, if we, I know we're not ranking this one because it's not an official studio album. If we had to rank it, what, where do you think it would fall? What number? Oh, God, that's, that, that's, that's tough. I, you know, I haven't really given that any thought. I'd have to go back and reevaluate, but, you know, I, I would, I, I could see it making top three. That's impressive. Impressive. You know, um, I probably could see it making top three just because again, the, the, the song, the chronic town is so good. And then we just mentioned those velvet songs are great. That toys and addicts. Great. You know, um, the you're crazy and just, there's so many other songs on there. They're just so good. Um, but you know, of course it does lose something. It doesn't have the flow of an album. Yeah, it doesn't. And like I said, some of the takes you can tell they aren't exactly being as serious as they should probably should be if they were recording an actual album. But that album came out, and we go to next to Document, which was their last studio album for IRS Records. It was the album that sort of started to break them. Um, obviously, it has uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, and the one I love, which were in heavy rotation on MTV. Um, this album gets kind of a bad rap amongst some people. I, I personally uh, like the album a lot, at least the first seven songs. Uh, the album was a kind of a change in, in song structure. Um, they were using some new recording techniques, and the drums were a little um, louder in the mix on certain songs. And uh, the uh, the guitar style of Peter Buck was uh, a little different from um, previous albums. Um, Obviously, Chris, uh, the one I love and it's the end of the world were the the two big ones, and we we've just you and I've discussed this earlier. Uh, I never get tired of listening to it's the end of the world as we know it, but the one I love, I've heard it so much, I change it every time it comes on the radio. Yeah, I don't do that. Uh, I, uh, I I understand what you're saying, but I, I do really like the song. Um, which, by the way, you know, uh, I've seen an interview where Mike Mills is laughing about that, and he said that. Um, they would play that live and all the guys would start grabbing it and, you know, hugging and kissing their girlfriends. And he said he'd be sitting a bit standing on stage thinking, well, man, you don't understand what the song is about. Right. It's a disturbing because, song. Yeah. And, um, kind of, it kind of makes you think of what, um, that Bon Jovi once said to, uh, to a Motley Crue about you're all I need saying they, that they had the, the perfect love song. And like, man, did you even listen to the lyrics? Right. Um, it's not a love song, no. but anyway, um, but, but, but two Mills, he laughs about that, but, but it's kind of, again, what I, what I said earlier that the band has, was, has been very clear on, you know, they don't really, you know, early on, they didn't even print the lyrics and the meanings off. You're searching for the meanings. They're like, well, we have our meanings. You form your own. And so that's kind of why Mike Mills was saying that it wasn't, they didn't really understand the song, but that's cool. Let it, I mean, let it mean to them what it means to them. But it just was funny for him knowing what, what Stipe, his intent was with the song, to know that they were treating it like this beautiful love song. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this, this too was the first album where, you know, Scott Litt produced, which Scott Litt's name popped on a lot more REM albums after this. Yeah, I think, I think and, he did um, the next five. And he, this is where they started to go a little bit more political. Um, into the world as we know it. You mentioned that song. I mean, that is. Um, you said some of the sounds were changing. Just that opening, that opening little drum 
is just I, I love that. I love that whole little thing. That that song that I never get tired of that song, one of my favorite songs ever. Um the hits on it are really strong. I'm going to let you go on this album more in a minute because I know you're going to have more to say about it. I'm not going to have as much. I um, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I, I, I dislike the album, but it's, um, I felt it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a drop off after the prior four that we just talked about, you know, and it was, it was definitely going a little bit more of a commercial sound. Was that's not to say that it's a sellout because it wasn't. Um, and in a way, I don't know that REM ever did sell out because how do you go from making these rocking albums to coming out and doing out of time? If you're in 10 on this to, to sell out, um, I think they always stuck to their core, but this album is just, uh, yeah, the hits on it. Are, are great um, the two hits then Finest Work Song I guess is kind of a hit as well Disturbance at the Heron House Heron House I think is, is a really good one and uh, I really like um, the last one that uh, old, that was it Oddfellas Oddfellas Local yeah Local 151 I, I really like that song um, not a bad album but um, I know you can sell it more than I can so I'm gonna let you do it I really like it. I think, like I said, the problem is the first seven songs, I think, are all above average. But the last, uh, what, one, two, three, four, um, I think really hurt the album as far as its overall strength. Definitely more political with a welcome to the occupation and exhuming McCarthy. Um, but you're right. The opening finest work song, the drums on that, that is awesome. You know who that is when, when that opens up. It's so such a good song. They also do a cover of uh, I'm not I think it was The Wire, uh, a song called Strange, which I love. I give five stars. I absolutely love that song. I play it all the time. But heavy, heavy rotation on uh, it's the end of the world and uh, the one I love from MTV. And this one is the one that took them from um, college radio to uh, mainstream radio. And, and they would continue that success with the uh, next album. But this was the final studio album on IRS Records. And so they signed with Warner Brothers. And five months before they came out um, with uh, Green on Warner Brothers, IRS released an album called Eponymous, which is more or less a greatest hits uh, record of the IRS years. And it's notable for three things. One, it contains the original version of Radio Free Europe, which you've said is, is better you, one. you prefer, and the original version of Garden at Night, which you say also the better you prefer, one. and a song called Romance, which was from the movie Made in Heaven. And uh, that I think Eponymous was just an attempt for IRS. To, this is their last chance they had to make money off of them before uh, they went with Warner Brothers. And so I think that was just a cash grab at the end to uh, get what they could while they could. I'm glad they did it though, because if you're if you're if you're an REM fan, you know most of the time compilations are not worth owning. But for Radio Free Europe and gardening, it's it's worth the price, you know. And so I'm glad they did release it. Yeah, one thing I did just want to say too is uh, with this album, I forgot to get this part out. But but when they were working on this, you know, Peter Buck said that he said months before they even cut the record, people were saying this is the record that's going to make you as big as you too. And his response was just well you haven't even heard the songs yet. And so I just know everybody was, I think they were expecting this one. I mean, everybody's expecting it to be big. I don't know what's giving them the inside information. I guess they just seem to be growing with each release. And, um, you know, they, they were right. The people thought it was going to be big and the one was going to really put them on the map because it did. And then green made it bigger. And then out of time, um, mega stardom. Yeah, so this was the last time they could probably walk around with any anonymity uh, when this when this album came out. Well, Chris, we've we've talked about each album. It's time, come time for us to uh, release our rankings of the IRS albums. Do you want to do the honors, or do you want me to? I'll go. Okay. Um, my uh, we'll just go. We'll go five to one. Okay. Number five. If you've been paying attention to us especially in the last five minutes, this will not surprise you. Document is number five. And, um, you know, which is kind of, kind of funny when you look at the, look at the cover of the album and it says document REM number five. Well, this is my number five. <laughs> um, 
Number four, Fables of the Reconstruction. Number three and two, two and three. I have a really, really tough time with this one, and I can probably flip them depending on the day. Um, but we're on this day, and so on this day, number three is Reckoning. Number two is Murmur, and number one, Life's Rich Pageant. But again, I got to go back to that Murmur Reckoning. I think Reckoning, if, if Murmur, if Murmur's two, then Reckoning's two B. I think they're they're so close and. And it's not the place of rich pageant. It's just that far head and shoulders above of, above those. It's just more of a clear, concise. It's easier for me to to, to say, yeah, that's my favorite one. That played out about like I, I thought it would. Um, my number five is Fables. My number four is Murmur. Number three is Document. And then this was interesting. Well, I did my composite star rating, and Pageant and Reckoning were tied exactly down to the decimal point. So, since um, got to go feel on that. I personally like feel like I like pageant a little bit more. I'm going to go with pageant as my number one, which is interesting. Every time you and I've done this, uh, whether it be social distortion, Black Crows, or now REM, we've come out with the same um, same number one album, and uh, I thought find that interesting. Uh, like I said, it and reckoning were tied to. I think reckoning. If I were in a little bit worse mood. Uh, would probably be the one I'd put on, and Fables, if I mean, a uh, pageant if I was a little happier. But uh, so I'm happy today. So uh, pageant got the nod at number one. But like I said, they were tied one and two. Yeah, I mean, we would be a lot more in, in line if it was it wasn't for the whole um, the more of the, the the appreciation you have for document and not being an overall fan of um, Murmur, you right. know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can I can. Uh, just kind of what we're talking about a lot of people including the band have never been that high on fables I understand that, that would come last for you but um again document just doesn't it never has it never has really truly grabbed me and um you know and i, I think and i i think fables of reconstruction is a really really strong record i mean it coming in number four does i mean <laughs> well any band should be luck, so lucky as to have, you know, when we're talking about these early, this early part of their career, to have their number four be that good. Because to me, it, I really, really, really like that album. And but the, and then those, just those top three, the Life's Pritch Pageant, Murmur, and Reckoning are. And, and, I, and I think you know, you know our, our mutual friend talking about with REM is we've talked about this before. That it's like, my God, is any? I mean, how, how many bands have had? Their fourth, their first four albums be that strong. Um, Not many. Yeah, and that's why you know uh, you don't. Yeah, you don't see it. You don't still see it very often. You know, they usually they usually don't go that long. And you know, and that's these first these IRS albums. We just it was a way to break it up. But it doesn't mean things went south on Warner Brothers because it did. It eventually did. That's what you'll hear next week, but. And uh, there were some really good Warner Brothers albums. Yes, there were. And we're, next week, that's a good way to segue into next week. We're going to cover from green on through a collapse into now, which will be considerably more uh, albums to cover. So we probably won't take as much time as we have on these, but spent a lot of time on these because these are some of the most beloved by um, uh, the hardcore REM fans. And, uh, if you're just a casual REM fan, these may be some that you don't have, and hopefully by us talking about them, you'll at least give them a try because um, they they are good. Chris, any parting shots before we call it a night? Well, I, I think what you're saying, if you're just kind of a casual fan, I can understand that maybe every album before Document kind of you kind of missed on that one, and I would just encourage you to go back. Um, listen to some of these ones we brought up and if and you know if you don't want to go back and listen to all of them i will say eponymous is not that i'm a big fan of going and buying a greatest hits but eponymous really is a a very good track listing you know if you, if you really think about it i mean they did a really good job with the, the songs that they picked out for the, that album um you because know, I'm, I'm looking at the track listing now. Radio for Europe, Gardening at Night, Talk About the Passion, South Central Rain, Don't Go Back to Rockville, Can't Get There From Here, Driver 8, Romance, Follow Me, The One I Love, Finest Work Song, 
it's the end of the world as we know it. That's a good starting point for early years. So, yeah, I would say if you're just wanting to try to hear a little bit more of the early stuff, maybe start with Eponymous. And if you fall in love with it, which hopefully you, you do, just buy all the albums that made up this this one collection. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be the end of our podcast for this week. As we said at the beginning, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Digital Killed the Radio Star Podcast, Twitter at Digital Killed. Uh, go to Instagram and follow us on Digital Killed the Radio Star Podcast. Next week, we will pick up in, I think, was it 1988 when um, Green came out and uh, this band started their ascent to uh, megastardom. Hope everybody has a good week, and we will see you next time.